Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. It's Tuesday, August 28th. We have a fun IPO to cover today, this time for Eventbrite, new company and really a new industry and business for us to explore on the show. And on top of that, I'm very pumped to welcome another new voice to the show. So Mr. Nick Seipel. Nick's actually going to be joining the Industry Focus team. In a few weeks, he'll be taking over for Michael Douglas on the Energy and Industrial Show. But before he takes the host seat, he's going to get his feet wet uh, with some of the other sectors, uh, developing his on-air persona. So, Nick, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm excited to get started, uh, hopefully to uh, share my knowledge with the listening community. Awesome. So, this is your very first appearance on a podcast, right? That's correct. Excited? Long-time listener, first-time uh, guest. Really excited to get started and uh, be part of the Motley Fool uh, team. Sweet. So, the timing really couldn't have been better because uh, I think it's always really fun to dig into these IPO filings and get a first look at the inner workings of a business. Um, before we get started, though, uh, why don't you just take a sec, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at the Motley Fool. Sure. So, uh, a few months ago, I graduated law school at the University of Alabama School of Law. Um, you know, I'd been really invest- interested in investing for a long time. I found myself with some extra cash and started uh, getting involved in investing. And one of the first places I went to was the Motley Fool. Um, I decided that you know I was interested in, in working in that field, and the Motley Fool was the first place I came, and I've loved it ever since. I'm excited to be part of the team and working to help the world invest better. Cool. So uh, a few questions about that. Since recently been getting into investing in the stock market, first stock you bought. Uh, so the first purchase I made was Apple. It's it's done pretty well for me so far. No regrets at all about that. Uh, it's a company I really love. Big uh, big Mac user, big Apple products user. So uh, it was really a good first start to investing, and I've been happy with it uh, so far. And what about your biggest winner so far? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, my biggest winner so far is Dexcom. It's a continuous glucose monitoring uh, company uh, for diabetes. Has performed really well this year. Uh, they just released uh, their G6 product, which is a no calibration CGM monitor and. Uh, the price has really exploded. So you're really looking all over in terms of you know you have the tech, super tech side, healthcare, so pretty well diversified then. Sure, I mean if it makes money, it's for me. <laughs> there you go. All right, so uh, the whole team's definitely excited to have you join us. Um, but if you're ready, let's talk Eventbrite. Sure, let's do it. So the proposed ticker uh, for the company will be EB, and at its heart, Eventbrite is in the business of um, quote. What they say, bringing the world together through live experiences. In other words, the company has a full platform for organizing live events. Um, the ca- company can offer what it calls creators or its customers everything from ticket sales to payment processing and analytics. So, for example, someone organizes or wants to organize a local marathon, they can turn to Eventbrite, put together a web page with race details, organize registrations and ticket sales for the race participants, and then help promote the race through social media and other channels, and then ultimately get some. Um, Day of the event, get renters checked in, and things along those lines. So that's just really a small taste, though, of the many features that Eventbrite has built into its platform over the years. And that's since 2006, when the company was founded by three people: Kevin and Julia Hartz, and then Renaud Visage. So Kevin and Julia are husband and wife, and they're the current leadership duo at the company. Essentially, uh, Kevin previously served as CEO up until 2016, uh, when Julia took over. He's now executive chairman, um, and. Founder-led management teams always kind of add an interesting element uh, to these stories and their backgrounds um, for the Hearts family. That really, 
has a clear influence on the origins of Eventbrite. So, on one hand, you have Mr. Hartz. Uh, he was previously a co-founder and CEO at Zoom, a payments processing company that was ultimately taken over by PayPal a few years ago. And then on the, on the other hand, you have Ms. Hartz. She worked in media and entertainment, developing a TV series for Viacom and Fox. So, you bring together uh, the payments processing, the entertainment sides, bring that expertise together, and you get to the core uh, of what Eventbrite, I think, offers. Um, so, before we get into kind of the meat of the business, uh, a few other things I'll mention. Eventbrite is another unicorn that's going public this year. Um, this follows the big debuts of companies like uh, Spotify, uh, iQiyi, Dropbox, Xiaomi, and uh, several others. So, uh, remember that unicorns are private companies with valuations over a billion dollars. And Eventbrite has previously raised about $350 million through private investments with firms like Tiger Global and Sequoia Capital, who remain major stockholders in the company, uh, along with the Hartz family. All right, so, let's talk a little bit about uh, the business. In terms of the revenue model, target market, and uh, some other important aspects of it, what do you think here? So, in terms of how the company generates revenue, can you just give us a breakdown there? Sure. So, uh, essentially, all of Eventbrite's, Eventbrite's revenue uh, comes from ticket sales. Um, they charge a 2.5 percent fee uh, of the ticket price on on every sale, in addition to uh, a 99 percent uh, a 99 cent fee on each ticket sold. Now, this only applies to uh, paid tickets through the platform. About two thirds of the tickets. Um, that they issue, and we'll discuss this later, um, are, are free tickets. Uh, their target market, and this quote uh, from Eventbrite, is it's the broad range of events between those where the venue dictates the ticketing relationship. When you think about that, you're thinking of huge blockbuster concerts, pro sports, and smaller events where there's no formal venue or event management needs. This is small personal gatherings. You have someone over to your home. So, they, they cover this broad range uh, of the market in that middle sector. Um, well, let me add there, just, uh, the uh, CEO has a great, great quote on this. You know, you think about live events, this huge multi-billion-dollar market, billions of tickets is- issued annually. Um, the key thing I think for Eventbrite uh, to keep in mind, you know, they you mentioned the the middle of the industry, the middle market is really their sweet spot. Um, Julie Hartz, uh, Hartz, she summed this up basically saying, not birthday parties and not Taylor Swift at Madison Square Garden, but everything else in between, and. Uh, that is really where they saw the opportunity originally when they started the company, and that uh, still remains kind of the strength of their model. So, right, that, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and in 2017, you know, Eventbrite, you know, addressing this model, you know, helped more than 700,000 creators issue approximately 203 million tickets across three million events in 170 countries. Um, and to just illustrate where that is in the middle market, you know, that, that's an average attendee per event of about 68. Uh, people. So these aren't huge events, but these are these are events that can be of some size. And I'll add to that too. Um, in terms of this pricing model that they have, they offer these different packages. Uh, they call them the essentials, the professional, and premium. And there's some variability there uh, in terms of what the creators have to pay to Eventbrite. Um, but it does appear um, that the company wants. To move up and help with some of these more complex, larger events with their premium package, where the pricing is kind of uh, created on a custom basis, um, and not only uh, with those ticket fees, I also want to mention that 90% of customers use Event by Eventbrite's payment processing as well, which generates an additional fee for the company. And again, some of the influence there of the. Um, of the founder, his background at Zoom, and how that's influenced the revenue model for this company. And you mentioned the scale. Um, 
you know, in terms of you know the hundreds of thousands of creators just in 2017, hundreds of millions of tickets. Uh, Eventbrite, uh, I think I saw, has processed over $10 billion in gross ticket sales since its founding. So uh, quite a bit of volume there. And with those uh, with those events specifically, um, the first thing for me generally. Uh, that comes to mind for uh, for something like this is live music, so a concert or a festival. Um, but there's uh, the the range of activities can also be things like fundraisers, cultural events, fitness events, other activities. And so, if we look at some of the trends and metrics that the company cites into perspectives, we I think we get a better sense of the company's strategy for growing its business and its market share too. So again, for 2017, uh, they mentioned that 95% of their creators. Using Eventbrite, sign themselves up. So it seems pretty compelling on the surface, but we will talk more about some of the challenges behind that as well. But what's your first take there? Ninety-five percent of people going to Eventbrite. It seems like a pretty win-win situation, right? Sure. I mean, it's a great situation in that the company doesn't have to spend any money to attract these creators to their platform. Don't have to spend dollars toward onboarding people onto the platform. It illustrates the the user-friendly nature. Um, which, particularly for these smaller events, it's going to be less sophisticated, you know, event planning mm-hmm. professionals. So it, it really opens up the accessibility, especially for small creators, uh, to use the platform and to get out there and plan their own events using Eventbrite. Yeah. So, you know, they definitely tout it as being very easy to use, um, limited support necessary for these creators, right? And Eventbrite wants to ultimately attract uh, these customers or these creators at the early stages of their career or business when they generate lower revenue, true, not as valuable, but gradually as they scale and grow, the company scales with them and until they uh, until they present more of a revenue opportunity for the company. And this relationship, uh, this strategy really bears out, I think, when you look at their total ticket volume and break that down in terms of their free versus paid tickets. You mentioned the two-thirds number for the free tickets. Um, and so that means 203 million tickets in 2017, only about 71 million were paid. Something important to definitely uh, keep in mind there. And going back to that uh, number uh, that we just mentioned, that 95% of people signing themselves up, they only accounted for 54% of revenue last year because uh, remember, Eventbrite is free to use when the tickets to the event are free. So for that other 46% of revenue, um, the company has to essentially send out a sales team to target creators who are popular and big enough to be hosting events with substantial paid ticket sales. In the first half of 2018, Eventbrite paid about $6.3 million signing on these creators, and that's on top of another uh, about $9 million in 2017. Um, But let's also now look at how that pans out in terms of the actual financial performance for the company. So I'll run down through a few uh, of the kind of high-level numbers. Feel free to jump in, Nick, um, with any of the details that uh, really stood out to you. But revenue in 2017 came in at $202 million. That's up 51% year-over-year. And in the first half of this year, 2018, it was $142 million, up 61% year-over-year. So I got to say, for a 12-year-old company, those growth levels do kind of reaffirm how large the market can be. One for for Eventbrite, um, even in this so-called um, middle market space, and it's important to note. Uh, and this is something that you really called out to me when we were prepping for the show: is that it's a pretty substantial part of the growth has also been driven by acquisitions, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, so, over the past five years, Eventbrite has made nine acquisitions. Uh, the most uh, significant of those acquisitions was acquiring Ticketfly from Pandora about a year ago in June of 2017. Uh, they acquired the company uh, for around $200 million, uh, which is significant in that 
little less than two years prior to that, uh, Pandora had acquired a, a ticket fly for about $335 million. So, so Pandora had, had overpaid a little bit, but Eventbrite was able to get uh, what amounted to their largest competitor in that middle market space. And uh, by acquiring event, uh, a ticket fly, Eventbrite has really become the largest player um, in the middle of the market. In addition, what they got uh, through that acquisition of TicketFly is TicketFly, as, as a subsidiary of Pandora for those two years, had built some partnership relationships and some integrations with Pandora. That has come over with the Eventbrite acquisition. So, not only has it allowed um, uh, Eventbrite to solidify uh, their control of the middle market space, but it's additionally gained them a partnership with Pandora to attract uh, users to use their uh, platform to attend events. Yeah, so with uh, the various buyouts that Eventbrite has um, has gone through, that's seven, I think I saw seven deals since 2015. Um, so, pretty acquisitive. And how that pans out in terms of the growth and kind of the caveat there, you know, I mentioned 61% top line growth in the first half of 2018. Only 60% of that expansion was organic. Uh, the remainder was driven by, for example, the TicketFly and Ticket T acquisitions. Right. Looking at the bottom line, um, profitability is also definitely improving, and that was something that uh, the CEO mentioned was kind of a, a so-called requirement before uh, they wanted to take Eventbrite public. So, uh, on a gap basis. The net loss shrank in 2017, and on an adjusted EBITDA basis, it more than doubled year over year to a positive $10 million for the first half of 2018. And um, I also mentioned that free cash flow is strong, $21 million for 2017. If you look at the balance sheet for this company, uh, Eventbrite has $260 million of cash on hand, less than $70 million for debt. Um, pretty strong, um, especially for a company at this stage and one that's growing at this level. Um, I like those numbers more than some of the other IPOs we've seen in terms of uh, how they're trending in profitability. Um, before we move on, kind of to our takes, what we like, what we don't like, otherwise about Eventbrite. Anything else you want to cover? Uh, yeah, I would just say you know from the balance sheet perspective, we're seeing a significant portion of their assets are goodwill. That's that's being reflected from those acquisitions we talked about. Yeah. Um, they're seeing pretty substantial international growth um, over the past year. Um, revenue outside the United States is up to 30% in 2017, uh, up from 18% in 2012. That shows it's really pushing abroad um, and gaining a market share overseas. I mean, in addition, the, their paid tickets for events outside of the USA were 36% of their overall paid ticket volume. That again reflects that internationally they're they're doing very strong as well as in the United States. Yeah, and uh, there's something interesting there in terms of uh, the. International paid ticket sales. It's interesting to note um, that with the international markets kind of growing, making up 25, 30% of revenue, that presents uh, a stronger option in a way for the company uh, in this realm because a lot of those regions charge lower fees in terms of the payment processing. Um, so, as the company scales globally, we might see even better profitability uh, because of that. And the last thing that I'll mention in terms of the the financials and what we're looking at with this deal is the use of proceeds. Um, there's no final number on the size of the initial pub public offering yet and how much they're going to raise, but uh, use of proceeds, the company cites uh, they want to pay down their, some of their debt. Um, they also just want to have some uh, flexibility going forward, uh, not surprisingly for p potential future acquisitions, but also uh, other investments. So. Looking at the our take now in terms of the bullish bearish points on this company, what we like, what we don't like, um, I'll let you start. What is something that you feel, uh, I guess, more bullish about with Eventbrite? Sure. So I think uh, their customer acquisition uh, 
is something that's very bullish for the company. Uh, so, 70% of, of the creators that come onto the platform uh, for Eventbrite uh, cite either prior experience as attendees at Eventbrite events or word of mouth from other creators as, as their uh, mode of getting onto the platform. And I, you know, that, that signals that Eventbrite isn't having to do a lot of active marketing to acquire these creators, that just the quality of the platform is bringing people on as well. And then once these people get onto the platform, they tend to stick around. Um, so in 2017, their, the retention rate uh, for Eventbrite was 97%. So that means almost every uh, creator who comes onto the platform in 2017 remained with the platform going forward. Uh, so they have relatively low cost to bring people onto the platform, and once they get on, they tend to stay. And those revenues stick around as well. Um, so from the uh, cohort of, of creators who came onto the platform in 2013, 78% of their revenue is still going to Eventbrite in 2017. So you have a low cost uh, to acquire these customers, and, and those customers stick around and keep paying dividends for the company over time. Yeah, and I forgot to mention this too when we were looking at some of the line items uh, on the income statement, for example. Uh, the company says that because of these low-cost avenues, like these word-of-mouth referrals and how they're building up their new creators, um, the company says that uh, sales, marketing, support costs, those will decrease over time as a percentage of revenue, um, thanks to the uh, thanks to these options essentially that they have, and it proves out in some of the latest numbers that we've seen um, that line item has declined from thirty six percent to twenty seven percent of revenue in twenty seventeen. I think that will um, only become a smaller uh, line item or expense as we go forward. And then uh, something else that I liked, in you know, we talked about the the fixed fee. The percentage of per ticket, the payment processing fees the company is also getting. Um, this is still a small part of the revenue, less than five percent of the top line. But they're also starting to branch out and look at things like uh, Dave Event and on-site services, uh, branding and web development, and event administration, marketing things, uh, additional services that, for example, that creators might need as they scale their businesses. Um, just another source of potential revenue as the company grows, and. The trends overall, you know, we've talked about the breakdown of free versus paid tickets, but paid tickets uh, grew. The portion there, or uh, the volume in general, was up 59% in 2017, up another 54% in the first half of 2018 to 47 million just in terms of broad volume. So we're seeing again the a, a solid trend in growth for the creators and the events that are actually generating revenue for the company. And you talked about retention rate. Um, and the last thing I'll mention with that retention rate and just kind of the trajectory of these creators is the what I call um, kind of like the path to revenue generation. You know, since 2015 the company cites about 17 of create percent of creators who held a free event went on to offer a paid one within 12 months of that first free event. Again, I think that speaks to how Eventbrite hopes to catch these creators when they're first starting out and then grow and scale with them. Uh, hopefully, as they become more and more successful, that means it's a win-win for the creator and Eventbrite as well in terms of the platform. Um, beyond that, though, there are definitely um, some red, fl uh, red flags, some risks uh, for the company that we want to cover. and. The big one for me uh, it comes in terms of competition. Before we get there, though, are you concerned at all in terms of some of the talent or the creator retention, some of the, the signing fees that we mentioned earlier? Does any of that stuff worry you, uh, or does it all kind of get wrapped in kind of the gorilla in the room we haven't mentioned yet, which is Live Nation, which dominates kind of the high end of the live events? What do you think? Uh, from my perspective, I, I'm not 
uh, very concerned about about those kind of retention fees they're paying to their creators. It seems to be just a par for the course for the business. Something you have to do once a creator gets to a certain size, yeah. they, they get that leverage and can kind of play off uh, different services against each other. But as you alluded to, I think the the big concern is: Are these creators going to start out from the free perspective at Eventbrite, grow, and then eventually get too big for the platform, grow out of that middle market uh, event space? And that is, that is concerning uh, because uh, the top end of the market is is heavily uh, dominated by um, by Live Nation and, and other operators that really control the large event venues uh, across the country and, and, that's and a, the world. That's a big part of it because as you become more and more successful and you start, your audience grows to the point. Uh, if you're a musician, to uh, the where you want these biggest venues, now you're basically leaving the realm where even Eventbrite has control because the venue has its own requirements uh, for how the ticket sales work, and that's the challenge here. Um, you know, we talked about all these different numbers about uh, the five percent or so of creators making up forty six percent of revenue, um, and how Eventbrite can scale with the creators as they grow. But is there a point where essentially is there a natural ceiling where people essentially break out of the platform, and how the company will address that? And uh, something else uh, to keep in mind here is the company has a lot of integration um, and with. For example, a creator's own website, but also other platforms. For example, like Spotify, um, there's always the potential there for some of these companies that are on the kind of discovery side for whatever these uh, creators are working. Whether it's music, uh, whether it's kind of fitness events and things along those lines, for the companies that are nascent to those industries to decide, hey, this is. A high growth space. We I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but we're seeing a lot of consumer spending shift. The growth for kind of experience based spending is growing faster than for uh, kind of material possessions. And there's always the potential, especially when you have a big uh, platform like Spotify, to decide that they see an opportunity here and they can move in and uh, present challenges for the company. Anything else jumped uh, to mind for you? Yeah, so I wanted to further flesh out your point that you had about Spotify, which is one of the, the key uh, partners for Eventbrite. Uh, so currently, uh, Spotify and Eventbrite are, are integrated together. Where if you go to an, an artist page um, on Spotify, it will show all the events or, or concerts that the artist uh, participates in that are Eventbrite events. So if Spotify were to get into the ticketing market, it would not only add a new competitor against Eventbrite against Eventbrite in the ticketing space, but also would take away one of their key partnerships and key drivers. Um, for bringing uh, new attendees to to Eventbrite concerts, and this is significant too because, uh, based on event, some uh, surveys that Eventbrite has done, 42% of people who discover a new artist do so through a streaming platform, of which Spotify is one of the largest. So, if they were to lose that customer acquisition or attendee acquisition channel, that would be very harmful to Eventbrite as a company. They're losing that exposure essentially. Correct. All right, um, we have a couple more minutes. Uh, I want to wrap up. With some of our final takeaways, uh, basically things to keep on keep an eye on uh, with this deal as the company goes public, and generally our, kind of our advice for how to approach IPOs. Um, so, uh, with this deal, just keep in mind that again, founder-led company, uh, the Hearts family. I think uh, after the company goes public, will still have about thirty-five percent ownership, and some of those private investors from the initial funding rounds from several years ago, like Tiger Global, Sequoia Capital, um, they are also going to be major owners. But I think about twenty percent stakes each. And so, next steps, uh, you know, our advice. Uh, 
among the industry focus cast, generally with IPO deals in general, is Give it some time, right? Uh, there's especially because this is a unicorn deal, and we've seen how strong uh, or how well some of those deals have performed in their debuts this year. Get, we always recommend, you know, with that initial hype in the beginning, give it a few months, see how the company uh, does with its first two, three, four quarterly reports that first year, and how consistent the growth is, especially here where it is very much a growth story. Um, and then beyond that. Things that I'm definitely watching: the growing portion uh, in terms of their total ticket volume, how much of that is made up with paid tickets, the other services that they're offering, and how they're kind of branching out and expanding their revenue opportunities with creators. Um, anything else that you think that investors who are interested, because this is a really cool business, um, should watch, whether it's an opportunity or a red flag. Sure, I think the biggest thing to watch with this company is that risk factor we talked about earlier of people age, you know, growing out of the platform and getting too large for that middle market space. So I would pay attention to of the paid tickets, you know, if the company decides to break out these metrics of, you know, what segment of their creator population is contributing to how much is it contributing to their overall revenue. I think we need to keep an eye on as the company grows. Do it? Does anybody grow out of the platform, and how does that affect? Uh, revenue growth over time. I think that's the most important thing: is are they retaining their big uh, money creators? On yeah, the who proved to be most uh, the highest value and most profitable. And that is kind of a nice lead into our topic for next week. Um, this is a really cool industry, um, and this deal kind of turning us on to. I don't think we've covered an IF before. We're going to look at the currently public company Live Nation, uh, which is very dominant in terms of these big creators. Uh, you know, we talk about. 2017, there's uh, Eventbrite served 700,000 creators. Live Nation served something in the low thousands in terms of events, but were huge, huge ticket volumes and revenue from that. So we're going to look at that company next uh, as a matchup as a matchup for Eventbrite, and we'll have updates once the company prices its deal. But Nick, awesome having you on, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, looking forward to talking with you more going forward. Sweet. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. We'll on.